0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. So good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. My name is David. Uh, I'm usually leading the singing, which I've done for about 15 years now. Uh, Eleven of those on staff is full-time director of creative arts. Uh, for those of you who don't know me or my family, that was my beautiful wife leading the singing this morning, and during rehearsal <laughs> this week and this morning, uh, she was doing all of that while also wrestling our three crazy beautiful kids, five and under. Um, I'm holding the guitar, so it's up to her. <laughs> our lead pastor, uh, Brad Talley, is on a walkabout in Australia this week, uh, literally. He's been in the city and in the outback, down under, uh, visiting family and friends with his Aussie wife, Allison. Um, We look forward to their return in two weeks. Uh, In the meantime, it's been a privilege for me and Ricky and then Scott next week to progress through Colossians here in July. Uh, I think it'd be really funny, Brad just told me he's going to be in Melbourne this week. Like if he's walking down the street and Dave Knight is doing some evangelism, that would be hilarious. Uh, I'm going to have to follow up on that. Um, The overarching theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ. Jesus Christ is amazing. He is beautiful. He is powerful. He is the Lord. The letter written to the church at Colossae seeks to exalt Jesus, to lift him up while establishing the church in the gospel, enabling them to engage their city and the world with the gospel. And that's our goal here now at Grace Community Church, to exalt Jesus, to establish one another in the truth, and to engage our communities and the world ultimately with the gospel. The Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in modern-day Turkey. So for reference, there's the boot where spaghetti comes from, and then this whole center area is just all Greek to me, and then this square thing is Turkey, what we called Asia Minor back in the day. We call it Turkey now. So by the time this letter is written, Paul's been on three different journeys around the Mediterranean over about ten years of his life, and a lot has happened in that time. After his third trip, Paul's arrested for his teaching. And while he's under arrest, he writes several letters. (laughs) Since he can't be out and about, he makes the most of every opportunity, and he's he's writing. So one of the leaders from the Colossian church uh, comes to visit him uh, while he's in prison. And he gives Paul an update on how things are going, what folks are talking about back in Colossae. So Paul writes this letter in response and sends it back to Colossae with his friend Epaphras, who came to visit. So again, by way of refreshing you, where we're at so far, and what's coming up. Here's how some folks might outline the letter to the Colossians. First, Paul begins with a greeting and a prayer. (laughs) And wouldn't it be wonderful if we still began correspondence in this way? Like, I can't imagine, literally, what an email that began with an actual greeting and a prayer for me. Like, I don't know how I would read that. Or what about a text thread that began in this way? Times have definitely changed in how we communicate. So next, Paul summarizes uh, some foundational truths about Jesus in a beautiful, almost poetic way. And then moving into chapter 2, Paul begins to treat these issues that Epaphras told him about. Uh, Because of this Jesus, who he's just exalted, this is what you should do with other teachings, other philosophies, other gospels. And then in chapter 3, Paul gets even more practical and shows how we all might live in light of the cross of Jesus. And after giving all these instructions, he then wraps up the letter with a word of encouragement. This morning will be specifically in Colossians 2, 8 through 15, reflecting on the truth that the gospel is God's triumph. There's no greater truth to tell than the gospel. The power of God, the love of God, and the faithfulness of God are all openly displayed to us in the gospel. What is the gospel? I usually tell it like this. There's no bumper sticker that I've found that summarizes it. And so you have to get a little bit in detail. And so I usually say, in his sovereignty, God created everything, including us. And humanity chose and chooses selfishness and pride. And we've broken our relationship with God and with each other. But God, the Father, was prepared to reconcile. And in his timing, he sent Jesus, his son, to live a perfect, sinless life. To teach us about the kingdom of God and to die the death that our selfishness and pride, our sin, deserves. Jesus died in place of us. Then, God showed his power over sin and death by raising Jesus to life. And those who believe these truths and confess their need will be saved from the consequences of sin and death. And empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to live transformed lives until Jesus returns. And when he does, everything will be made right. All the sad things will come untrue. All the broken things will be fixed. And we will be resurrected like him to live forever. True story. Would you pray with me? God, you have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Father, would you speak to us through the testimony of your Son and open our eyes by the power of your Spirit so that we may see and hear your word to us this morning. We don't want to let this opportunity pass. As we read your word, give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. And as we fellowship, as we pray, as we sing, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now if you would stand with me as you are able uh, in respect for God's word as I read today's text. In Colossians 2, 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you'd be seated. As we look at this section of text, and please look at it with me uh, in your Bible or in your app, whichever it is, whatever your fingers are going to do, look at it with me because a part of me just wants to read this text again and go home. That's probably the worship leader part of me that wants to be behind the guitar. But it's also the impression of the power and significance of these declarations. You have been filled in him. You have been buried with him in baptism. And you were also raised with him through faith. You were dead. God made you alive in him. He set aside the record of debt against you. Nailing it to the cross. That's a summary of the gospel. And Paul ends this section with, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. This is a little out of order, but I want to highlight this verse in your mind for just a second. Because I love martial arts movies. This is mostly my dad's fault for letting me watch Jean-Claude Van Damme and Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan movies as a kid, which I totally want to do with my kids now. (laughs) But for me, it's, it's not about the fact that they're fighting. It's actually a beautiful choreography that happens in the best film. Choreography that's rehearsed and performed to a timing very much like the best dance. It's beautiful in its own way. So one of the tropes or repeated motifs of these martial arts films is that when the seemingly weak or unprepared unarmed master encounters a group of heavily armed guards. So usually it's a group of guys with big swords and shiny knives. And in the best sequences like this, The master then deftly, effortlessly, maybe with one hand even, disarms every single guard, leveraging the momentum of their furious attack, causing them to trip over each other, slam into each other, and and all lose their weapons and just fall over. You you know what I'm talking about. This This is the mental picture I get when I read this verse. God the Father deftly disarmed in such a way that they're ashamed of themselves. God triumphs in Jesus, who didn't take a militaristic approach as Messiah. Rather, God used that violent momentum of the rulers and authorities against them. They struck Jesus with what they thought was a killing blow. But it was all part of God's plan for ultimate victory over death itself. Before I get too carried away thinking about fight scenes, let's jump back to the beginning of this text. This is the text uh, when it was first written. You know, Paul had reasons for writing this. It wasn't just a friendly letter to catch up. It wasn't a lecture to be delivered in a sermon series necessarily. It was Paul's way of helping the church at Colossae remember rightly. So Brad and Ricky both alluded to the bigger issue that is concerned with for the church. And so when we read the book as a whole, it's hard to pin down exactly what Paul's upset about, but it's clear that it was a potential misunderstanding about Jesus. So accordingly, chapter 1 is this beautiful reminder of who Jesus is. We get a more clear picture of Paul's problem here in chapter 2. And yet, many biblical scholars still disagree on exactly which heresy or false teaching Paul might have had in mind. What we do know for sure is that this letter functions like a vaccine. As one scholar puts it, the epistle is a vaccination against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already afflicted. So when you read Galatians in comparison, it's clear that Paul is providing an antibiotic, a strong dose of the spirit-filled life that will kill off the life driven by selfishness and pride, that will break the chains of slavery to sin and bind us instead to God. Here in Colossians, though, Paul wants to give the church just enough of the key terms and ideas to watch out for, like how a vaccine works. And when someone does come in with these new ideas... The church will be ready. Their spiritual immunity will be strengthened. They'll be firm in the understanding of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he's going to do. So the first thing that Paul pointing, is pointing out here is that human-centered religion is a trap. And if you know me, you know that in my head I just heard Admiral Akbar, But it really is a trap, though. I mean, think about it. A religion with humans at the center as the origin, we're our own worst enemies, especially in our sinfulness. So Paul summarizes this in the text by describing this and then telling us what the trap can do. So Paul describes philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and the elemental spirits of the world. This is the first description we get in this letter of the big issue that Paul wants to vaccinate against. It's a worldview that was dominant in the area of the Mediterranean. And if you think about it, Turkey is right in between Israel and Greece. So they're getting folks who are familiar with Greek philosophy, and folks who are well-versed in Jewish practices, and they all live in community together in these cities of Asia Minor. So Colossae wasn't a major city at this point in history, but there were still folks passing through on their way to Laodicea or to Ephesus. So it's like Anger. People pass through on the way to Raleigh or Fuquay, Or Holly Springs, if we're honest. And they stop to get sunny skies, right? But all sorts of people pass through. And diverse folks live, even in this little place in between other places. So Colossae was a diverse place in between places. So the heresy, as it were, that Paul is addressing here in Colossians, it's a kind of syncretism. So to borrow from Ricky's illustration from last week, folks in this part of the world and during the first century they were tempted to put together their favorite pieces of religion like a Mr. Potato Head. So they'd bring the view of God from Greek mythology, they'd bring the behavioral laws from Judaism, they'd adopt the ideas of secret knowledge from some other pagan religion, and they'd put it all together. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a human-centered religion. If you're putting together a view of God that fits you, your perspective, your experience then God and God's self-revelation isn't at the center of that process. You are. So now to be clear, Paul isn't eliminating philosophy and tradition from Christian practice. Far from it. Paul employs philosophical arguments when he shares the gospel. There's not a problem with clear, disciplined thinking. The problem is when the philosophy is centered on humanity or coupled with empty deceit, as Paul notes here. And the problem with a word like philosophy is that it can mean different things in a a given context. So in this context, Paul is most likely referring to the specific syncretism philosophy that allows people to put together their Mr. Potato Head religion. He's condemning that monstrosity, not the use of philosophy generally. So I think about the scene from Toy Story 3 where Mr. Potato Head puts his parts on the tortilla. Do you remember what I'm talking about? That's the craziness of syncretism. That's what Paul is trying to vaccinate against. That'll give you nightmares. So Paul, he's also not condemning traditions. In fact, in other epistles, Paul uses this exact same word for tradition in a positive way, encouraging Timothy to continue the traditions that he received from Paul and that he was raised in by his Christian mother. So don't think that Paul is saying in this text that all traditions are bad. It's the human-centered ones that become a trap. So for instance, the, uh, the tradition of standing when we read the scripture, that's not in the Bible, but it's a tradition that's focused on honoring God as the one who speaks through his word. But a human tradition, such as Paul is calling out here, it's one that deviates from the gospel. So, so we'll learn about this next week, but many of the Jewish traditions that developed outside of the Torah to supposedly help folks obey better, that's what Paul has in mind here as the text continues to point out. And then as Ricky reminded us from the text last week, we're to walk in Christ. Not walk in step with some strict codified manner of keeping the law, because the only way to keep the law is by walking in Christ. For he has kept the law perfectly. And by walking in his power, we can actually respond in love and recognize God's law as beautiful and free and not as a burden. The burden at this time, as Paul is writing, was being built by these human traditions that added to the law and added to the simple gospel that Jesus has done what we cannot and could not do. A human tradition says, do this and trust Jesus. The gospel says, trust Jesus and live like you do. And that order is important. It's remembering the indicatives before the imperatives. We must remember who we are and who we are in Christ, then we can go and do. But trust Jesus, then live life. And the last way that Paul describes the false teaching here in our text is that it's according to the elemental spirits of the world, which is a way of pointing to the spiritual dimension of life. It's a reality that we often forget. But the syncretistic false teaching that Paul's vaccinating against it was one of these that it presumed the truth of astrology or, or an incorrect understanding of heavenly beings and angels. So if you recall how, how Greek mythology like, goes all crazy, if you've seen Wonder Woman this summer, you have kind of reminded of some of this. But like the elemental power of the storm, of war, of the ocean, these things were all deified in ancient religions. And then here in Colossae, there may have been even a teaching that was making more out of angels than was necessary beyond what is biblical. Even though it sounded biblical, and it certainly referred to beings who have an important role as God's messengers, that these elemental powers or angels were becoming a central part of the teaching. So Paul wants to preemptively correct this worldview of the church at Colossae. He wants them to be ready with a worldview that's built according to Christ, centered on Christ, the way God has self-revealed in Jesus Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of God dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So, brothers and sisters, don't miss that. You have been filled with God. This is by the Holy Spirit of God. So, Paul has just reminded the church at Colossae and us that the Trinity draws us into a relationship. Just as all of God was present in Jesus, all of God is present in you through the Holy Spirit. Take that, elemental spirits of the world. The God of creation dwells in his children. So we need to remember that we're filled because of what this false teaching can do. Paul says that it can take you captive. And the verb here is a pretty strong one. It's used to describe somebody being kidnapped or carried off. So if you're, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, then the danger here is to be distracted and confused by teachings that will draw your eyes away from Jesus. We know from Peter's experience, what looking away from Jesus will do, right? Thankfully, God is faithful to his children and will never leave us, just as Jesus didn't leave Peter in those ways. But who wants to sink for even a moment, much less a portion of our lives? Who wants to be distracted, taken away by a false gospel? The only way the Colossians stood a chance against the pervasive arguments of well-meaning teachers who were pushing human-centered religion was to hold fast to the truth they've received in the gospel—the truth according to Jesus—and we can hold fast, in fact, because we are united with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God. So this is the antidote. This is what this text makes very explicit: is our union with Christ. Paul just mentioned that we are filled in him, and he continues illustrating the implications of our union. Because in Christ, we are circumcised spiritually. Now, the practice of circumcision is a pretty weighty topic to cover, especially if you consider all the significance of the Old Testament for understanding God's purpose in this particular rite. But in an all-too-brief summary is this, is that circumcision set apart the covenant people of God. What Paul is saying in this text is that those who have professed that Jesus is Lord, if you've confessed your sin, you're seeking to repent and trust in Jesus, you've been circumcised by that public profession. So if you're under Jesus' lordship, you've been marked out. You've been set apart in a way that's more permanent than the circumcision made with hands. And the use of circumcision here is also a metaphor for Jesus' death, his being set apart and cut away on our behalf. The circumcision of Jesus and his death is a circumcision on behalf of all the uncircumcised who believe. So the way we make this spiritual reality public is by baptism. Paul's reminding them, hey, remember your baptism. When you went under the water, it was as if you were buried. And when you were raised up, it was a picture of how Jesus has raised and how we will be raised. The practice of baptism is how we identify with Jesus and God gave us this beautiful practice to remind us that he identifies with us through faith and the powerful working of God. Baptism makes public the fact that we've been set apart in Christ. Then Paul continues. He points out the fact that we are dead in our trespasses, our sinfulness, our pride. Our disposition as sinners makes us helpless to do anything. To remedy the situation. So since Paul is writing to mostly Gentiles, he reminds them that they were dead in their trespasses or sins against God and the fact that they weren't Jewish. They were uncircumcised in their flesh. So since they're familiar with what we just talked about, uh, these Gentiles knew the importance of circumcision for setting people apart. So Paul's basically hitting them with this double whammy. You were completely cut off from God in your sin. But, there's an invisible implied but here. God made you alive together with Jesus. And he has forgiven us all our trespasses, all of them. Everything you did, everything you're doing, everything you will do, the sin against your family, your friends, yourself, and your God, he has forgiven you. Amen? That's the testimony that Cody and Christina just sang. In the last two years, uh, both Cody and Christina have made professions of faith. They've been baptized, and they've come to a deeper understanding of the gospel. And their story is highlighted by the powerful truth that in Christ, they are forgiven. So all the things we wish we hadn't done are things we wish we hadn't seen. God has shown amazing grace to us in the work of Jesus that brings complete forgiveness. So I'm really grateful for the time I had to walk with Cody in discipleship these last couple years. And we're going to miss him very much as they finish their move to Wilmington. Uh, He's going to begin studying at UNCW. And seriously, you'll miss him too, whether you realize it or not, because I've been scheduling him a lot on bass and guitar and even drums. Um, But how did God forgive us, as they just sang a few minutes ago? Paul points that out in the text. He canceled the debt that stood against us. He satisfied all the legal demands He set it aside. How? By nailing it to the cross. By nailing our sin and its punishment to his own son on a piece of wood in public view. Jesus died to make you alive. And Jesus did not stay dead. God has triumphed over religiosity and all authority through Jesus. So remember, Paul is writing to vaccinate the church in Colossae against a worldview of syncretism that, if unchecked, could affect God's people with lies, could capture them in a a trap that stifles their spiritual maturity. So folks with persuasive arguments, using philosophy skillfully yet deceitfully, relying on human centered traditions, they were coming if they weren't already there. Maybe there are even folks that trust Jesus as Lord. They've been swayed themselves by the worldview of the broader culture, so they were adding something to what Jesus has already done. All of the rulers and authorities, with persuasive arguments and airtight propositions and otherwise convincing beliefs, God disarmed them all and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus' resurrection. So the love of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the soon return of Jesus, through the gospel this good news God has triumphed over every power, any other worldview, any other way of trying to save ourselves the church at Colossae needed to hear this encouragement, and Grace Community Church needs to hear this encouragement too why, why why do we need to hear this? Ted McKinney actually posted an interesting link this week uh, to an article on Christianity Today that cites some research done by Barna Research Group. And in this survey, they wanted to ask Christians what they believe. Sounds simple enough, right? So among the practicing self-identified Christians who took this survey, 61% of them unknowingly agreed with practices and beliefs of new spirituality. They agreed with karma. If you do good, you'll get good things. If you do bad, you get bad things in return. Now, the principle of sowing and reaping is really similar to this. But the gospel of grace moves outside of karma. We get what we don't deserve. And I'm so grateful for that. That's the gospel. Additionally, over a third of folks in this survey unknowingly agreed with tenets of Marxism, which undergirds communism. And there's a lot of other isms that people can be swayed by. Isms that are built on human traditions. Even good isms like capitalism or denominationalism, when they become ultimate or the center of our worldview, not Christ, we need to hear this text from Colossians. God has triumphed over every ism through Jesus. Just as the church at Colossae was in a culture with a syncretistic worldview, surrounded by teachers with persuasive arguments, I believe that we're living in a culture with a deep infection. The trap or ism of our particular culture, especially here in North Carolina, uh, is moral therapeutic deism, the MTD that's on the screen. So moral therapeutic deism takes pieces of Christianity and pieces of the American dream and pieces of secular humanist philosophy and combines it into an attractive religion that's totally dead on the inside. So here's how to recognize uh, moral therapeutic deism. Its main tenets are a God exists who created the world and and orders it and watches over human life. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. When Paul wrote to inoculate the church at Colossae against the philosophies and human traditions that were in the area, the beliefs they held weren't all that bad. They were well-meaning teachers, surely. They wanted their followers to please their version of God and live satisfying lives. And when the beliefs of the culture are close to the gospel, it's especially dangerous. Because we all know somebody who believes this way. This is what they think the gospel is, right? This is what the mainstream media for sure would say that Christians believe. And this is a broad cultural understanding or misunderstanding of how the world works. And it's especially prevalent here in the U.S. in the Bible Belt in Harnett and Wake counties. So these beliefs are deism because this God is created and now has stepped back with no need or desire to be directly involved uh, with creation. They're therapeutic because the goal is happiness. Deal with the problems so you can be happy because that's what God and everyone else wants. And they're moral because as long as you do you and I do me and we don't offend each other and we generally try to do good things, then everybody gets to heaven. So have you been vaccinated against this? If not, that's why Paul wrote Colossians. And that's why Grace Community Church is here, to exalt Jesus to establish believers, and to engage the world with the gospel. So let me read these tenets of moral therapeutic deism again and then peel them back, and peel off the facade. So God exists who created the world and watches. The Bible gives a radically different perspective on this. God exists and then became human, the opposite of stepping back. God stepped in, to love us in the most tangible ways possible. God wants us to be good, nice and fair. This is actually pretty true. Uh, but moral therapeutic deism doesn't answer why God wants this. Or to what ends. I mean, what's the point of being fair if I could be rich instead? What's the point of being nice if it just gets me abused? This ism it doesn't go deep enough to what it really means to be human. God wants us to be lovers who love him and love other people. That's so much more robust than nice or fair. Why settle for the weak surface summary of what it means to be a human? The central goal of life is to be happy. What's funny is that most of us immediately know that this isn't the point, but we live like this is exactly the point. The central goal of life is to know God and enjoy a relationship with him forever. This will indeed bring happiness and help you feel good about yourself. But this comes from hearing what God says about you, not from digging deep into your own soul and finding out who you really are. Because if you're in Christ, that is who you really are. You've received adoption as sons and daughters, as the Bible claims. And if your father is the God of all creation can feel good about yourself especially as you enjoy a loving relationship with him with his faithfulness and his affirmation of you as a child god doesn't need to be involved unless there's a problem yet again many of us know that this isn't true but we live it out god is the fix-it handyman ready to cater to your need he's like a, a deified stephen eisenberg yeah. So I call Steve, I need something fixed. Maybe it's that we've just forgotten to pray, you know, for, for a, a couple of weeks or a couple of years. And then we can't pay a bill or we get very sick. And all of a sudden we remember how to pray. So the problem is that folks who aren't believers will notice this. And even though we know that God's involvement with us is daily through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And even though we know we've been baptized... We forget we've been raised to walk in newness of life, to walk in step with the Spirit, no longer Christ who lives in us, no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. And that's actually a lot of daily involvement. We're encouraged, like Chris just said, to pray without ceasing, to thank him for our daily bread, because as we already said, the central goal of life should be to enjoy our relationship with God and all the ways that impacts daily life but he's present for more than just the problems. He's there the whole time. And lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. I'm so glad this isn't true. Because if it was, I'd just give up. Because A, I'm not a particularly good person, and B, trying to be good is exhausting and no fun. (laughs) So my daughter has these really pretty pins that she's been using the last couple weeks. She's been coloring all these awesome pictures and Ripping out all the pages of her notebook to give to people. Last week, though, I found some purple ink on the door to their bathroom. She had drawn a little eye or something and some scribbles. And these are legit pens. This is a white door, and we're moving in two weeks. So I was not a happy dad. And remember, a I'm not a good person, so I was pretty hot with her. And as she sat on her bed in out, and I said to her, "Why did you color on the door? Why did you color on the wall?" Why did you break your blinds? What are you doing, baby? With tears in her eyes, she covered her face and said, I don't know, because there's something wrong with me. My first instinct was, of course there is, because A, I'm not a good person. But then my second was, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with you. It's okay, baby. But but then I went with my third instinct, which I think was the Holy Spirit. And I said, you're right, sweetheart. But it's the same thing that's wrong with Daddy and with everyone. We all have hearts that make bad choices. That's why God sent Jesus. That's why Jesus had to die. If moral therapeutic deism is the gospel, then why make a big deal about Jesus? The assumptions of this false gospel are that all of us are inherently good. We just have to do more good things than the bad things and we'll make it out okay. But Clara at four years old, has already recognized something about herself. She's being honest about her heart, where some of us old folks have put up walls. We want people to think we're good, nice, fair folks. We've been putting on that mask for so long that we've half-fooled ourselves. But when we're honest, there's something wrong, something broken, that only God Praise God that he can. Because in Christ, we are filled, we are set apart, we are alive, and we are free. By confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believing in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, God saves us from the consequences of our sin, nailing it to the cross. With Jesus as Lord, we are saved from sin and ultimately saved from death. So in Christ, we are filled with God's power. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in the temple of your body, connecting you in deep fellowship with God and with God's people. The rest of the letter uh, to the Colossians is going to help us understand the implications of being unified with Christ, of being filled with God. So if you haven't read through the rest of the book yet, please do that this month. Uh, It's short enough that you could actually read it through a couple times before we finish. In August. So I encourage you, dig into the riches of God's word that explain more of what it means to be filled and in Christ. And we are set apart. Now, during times of political and social polarization, that's pretty obvious. But we've been set apart in the sense that God has called all of his people to be his body in the world. You haven't been just set aside or taken into a different space. You've been given a new name. You've been adopted as a son or daughter of God, and in that way, you've been set apart. You bear the name of Jesus as you live with your family in your neighborhood, as you go to your place of work, as you post to Instagram and Facebook. You bear his name. You've been set apart as God's own. And we are alive, both now and forever. I think it's easy to remember that, yeah, we'll live for eternity if we've been saved, as if that's something to take for granted. But those of us who live in this post-Christian culture often forget that we're also alive now. When you come up out of that water, you are raised to walk in new life. And God is making your heart alive with him. The life of faith that we live is now and not quite yet. So live like it. And we are free from captivity to our passions. Free from guilt. Free from fear. There are any number of things that can hold us captive in addition to moral therapeutic theism or other philosophies or human traditions. If you feel captive to your passions, your desires, your addictions, remember that you are in Christ, filled with his fullness. And as Ricky reminded us last week, he will help you feel love and love rightly. If you're captive to guilt, like the church at Colossae was potentially getting caught up in because they're obliging Jewish and pagan rituals that were extra gospel. If you're caught up in guilt, remember that you are in Christ who has borne all of your sin already in his body on the cross. God holds no accounts against you. He set them aside. Ask God to help you set your guilt aside too. If you're captive to fear, remember Every ruler and authority, every power, both physical and spiritual, is under the lordship of Jesus. The cells of your body, the rulers of the countries of the earth, and the rotation of the galaxies in the universe are all under the lordship of Jesus. If he is for you, who can be against you? Ask God to help you remember rightly what his victory over death means for you. Be not afraid. Because the gospel is God's triumph. The cross of Christ is such a paradox. The victory of God and what would otherwise appear to be this utter defeat is is hard to grasp. But this is the gospel according to Christ. It stands against the philosophies and human traditions and witchcraft of every age. God has revealed to us the mystery of who he is, how he loves, and his plan to make things right in the person and work of Jesus, our Messiah. So in in our culture that assumes a kind of gospel, it becomes easy for persuasive false teachers to wield the law or being good enough like weapons of oppression. But as Michael Byrd puts it, without the power of sin and the law, the powers are disarmed as their single arrow to threaten and kill has been broken in the body of the Messiah. Jesus' death and resurrection is triumph over every power, every possible ruler or authority, for all time. There is no weapon that can be formed against us because Jesus has already absorbed the killing blood. So N.T. Wright puts it this way, coming out of this passage in Colossians. He says, these powers of Rome and Israel, they conspired to put Jesus on the cross. These powers stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. In a beautiful paradox, though, on the cross, God was stripping them naked, was holding them to public contempt, and leading them in his own triumphal procession in Christ, the crucified Messiah. So in a way, this triumph makes a paradox out of us, who live in the world, but we're not of it. God has called out a people for himself. A new family in which the ways of the old world, its behavior, distinctions of race and class and sex, its blind obedience to the forces of politics, economics, prejudice and superstition, they become quite simply out of date. A ragged and defeated rabble. Let us endeavor to live like this new family. Vaccinated against the deceit of moral therapeutic deism or other human traditions because they all fall apart in light of the fullness of the gospel. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, you are great and great. This morning we are grateful for the opportunity to worship together, to sit at the feet of your word. I pray that you would indeed mold us and shape us into the body of Christ in the world. Pray that you would protect us from the lies of the enemy, from the foolishness of human tradition and deceitful philosophy. I pray that in all things, Christ would be glorified, your people would be established, and the gospel would continue to go forth to the ends of the earth. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray and know that you hear us. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.